2: Hello, this is the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast from Literary Hub, where we believe that every issue in your Twitter feed or on the evening news has already been tackled somewhere in literature. I'm Whitney Terrell, the author of the novel The Good Lieutenant.
0: And I'm Vivi Ganeshanathan, also known as Sugi, author of the forthcoming novel Brotherless Night. So in today's episode, we're going to talk about homelessness and housing insecurity. And Whitney, you know this has been on my mind for a while because here in Minneapolis, I've seen homeless encampments in parks very close to my house and parks in my neighborhood and have also seen those places shut down, their residents evicted, and sometimes with not even much of a chance to retrieve their stuff. And I just wonder, like, what are people who are struggling to access housing? And especially during the pandemic, that's more and more people. What are those people supposed to do?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's definitely been an issue and I think a a larger issue here in Kansas City during the pandemic. There was a period of time when there were uh, homeless people camped outside the the mayor's office and he uh, arranged for them to move into hotels. But that was, you know, that was all a pandemic issue. And there are more and more encampments around town, at least for me, anecdotally, than than there used to be. The pandemic relief checks are gone. Last summer, the Supreme Court ruled that since a federal eviction moratorium had come from the CDC. It couldn't stand. Uh, Another nice thing the Supreme Court did. Uh, Some states have put their own moratoriums in place, but with a major shortage of public housing, it's not enough. Inflation is hitting record highs. Rents and housing prices are soaring. Incomes are not keeping pace with prices. And that's all exacerbating the problem.
0: Yeah, I found that it was pretty hard to get solid stats on homelessness and housing insecurity in the U.S., but it's pretty blatantly obvious that we have both homelessness and housing crises and that those things are intimately related. And according to the National Alliance to End Homelessness in January 2020, and this is, again, before the pandemic, 580,466 people in the U.S. were experiencing homelessness.
2: Housing insecurity also intersects with many of the other issues we talk about on the show, mental health, racism, sexism, disabilities, incarceration, and poverty are all, you know, connected to that issue. Homelessness can take many different shapes, and today, Emmy Neetfeld, the author of the memoir, Acceptance, is here to discuss the shape it took for her and how she chose to write about it.
0: Emmy Neetfeld is a writer and software engineer. After graduating from Harvard College in 2015, she worked at Google and Facebook. Her essays have appeared in The New York Times, The Rumpus, Vice, and other publications. She lives in New York City with her family, and Acceptance is her first book. Emmy, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
2: Uh, You grew up in Minnesota. We have a shocking number of people who have grown up in Minnesota on this show. I don't know why that would be happening. Suspicious. Your memoir describes your life with your mother and father and their divorce, your father's transition, your time in the Methodist Hospital Eating Disorder Institute and in the Children's Residential Treatment Center. And it, is, is it Interlochen? Is that how you say that school? Okay. And at Interlochen, mm-hmm. a private arts high school where you studied photography and, uh, and many other parts of the book. But um, what were the parts of your life when you felt housing insecure or was it most of this time?
1: Yeah, so... Until I was about nine, I lived in a middle-class, like, two-parent family, Um, but my mom was a compulsive shopper, and so kind of in secret, she bought a lot of items and hoarded them. And when my parents divorced, and, um, and I lived with her when I was 11, this got a lot worse. So we lived in this apartment where there were piles of trash everywhere, and only only like these narrow paths kind of snaking through them Um, and very quickly we had mice everywhere and it was hard to take a shower because the bathtub was completely full of like empty water bottles empty peanut butter jars Um, so at that time you know the hoarding was kind of a unique form of housing insecurity where we had a roof over our head but it wasn't exactly livable And we both kind of lived in fear that somebody would come to the house and see it and find out and that it would be condemned making this kind of precarious financial situation we were in worse. Um, but the worst time was later in my teenage years, um, after I was in children's residential treatment center and in foster care, um, and my mom's house continued to deteriorate. And then I was dealing with not having a place to stay during breaks from school.
0: So I think that one of the things that's important about your story and about this issue is that we don't seem to have a good definition of what it means to be housing insecure or homeless, as you're sort of alluding to. And I was trying to look up statistics about this, and I could see how challenging it was, because, of course, like, there's the obvious difficulties of kind of tabulating numbers of people who, you know, don't have addresses, don't have shelter, um, versus people who are sheltered, right? I was getting numbers for sheltered persons who had experienced chronic homelessness versus other, and I was sort of learning all of these terms and realizing just even how fuzzy those were. Um, And I'm sort of interested also in the way that I feel like in the last few years, we've started to use the term housing insecurity um, or food insecurity uh, in relation to, or adjacent to the term homelessness. And, and, there are passages in your book when you were living in your car or in a shelter, and as you tell one shelter worker, you have, quote, nowhere else to go. And I think that, you know, we have like this usual way that the, the sort of tropes of homelessness, the ways that Americans imagine homelessness. But it's my guess that that's not the only way that housing insecurity appears. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about that.
1: Yeah, that's definitely not the only way. Um... So the short, short-term homelessness, where you know somebody might lose their job or their apartment and be homeless for a night or two, is actually the most common kind in America. But there's a lot of other types of housing insecurity, um, ranging from people who have psychosocial issues like substance abuse disorders or s- mental illness, who might be leaving institutions like a hospital or a prison. Um, there's also a lot of families for whom housing is just really unaffordable and who might be evicted or spend time doubled up with other families. Um, There's a lot of, there's more attention brought to LGBT youth who might have been kicked out or rejected by their families, and there's a lot of foster youth, both who are aging out of the system, and one statistic is that 20% of youth aging out experience homelessness within four years. And there's also a lot of people like me who you know, were in foster care and were like, quote unquote, reunited with their families, but they couldn't actually live at home. And I think that that brings up a really common situation that we know about, but we don't necessarily think of as housing insecurity, which is, you know, young people who aren't really old enough to live on their own, but whose parents might have issues or abuse that means that they need to find somewhere else to live. And I think in the best case scenario, you see people living with other family members or even with their friends' parents. But in the worst case, you have people bouncing between places, couch surfing, um, potentially living in vehicles or on the street or in really dangerous situations.
2: So one passage that you're – there's a passage in the book where you're living in your crisis later on. uh, It's midway through. And, you know, and this happens at a point in the narrative where I was thinking, okay, she's safe. This is all going to be fine. She's, you know – in a good school, and is going to apply to college, and this is all going to get sorted, you know, but no, you end up sleeping in your Corolla and then checking into a shelter, which was surprising, but also completely believable. And I understood how it happened, and I started to think about how accumulating circumstance causes this right over time. Um, I wonder if you could talk about that period in your life specifically, and then read that passage from the book.
1: Before my junior year of high school, things like seemed to be really looking up for me. I had been accepted at 15 to attend this small campus of the University of Minnesota, where I was able, where I was going to be able to leave foster care and live in the dorms. And then something even better happened, which was that I got a scholarship to go to boarding school. And so kind of all of these stars aligned. I was really focused on my dream of going into an Ivy League school. And I even had this celebrity college counselor who had taken me on pro bono. So the summer when I was 16 was approaching and it became increasingly clear that I wasn't going to have a place to stay all summer. And I begged my mom to contact my social worker who could have put me into a respite foster home, but my mom wouldn't do it. And so I ended up sleeping on people's sofas, um, staying with one friend after another. And I had to get surgery. And afterwards, I was going to recover at a friend's house, but it wasn't a great place to be, and her boyfriend kind of really creeped me out. And so right before this passage, I woke up from this drug-addled sleep and found that I was alone in her house and in pain, and so I got up and I left. And here's what happened next. I had to drive fast before the Vicodin kicked in. I didn't know the roads, but I knew my destination, the main library downtown. To calm myself, I recited my litany of a to-do list. A dozen achievable tasks erased the uncertainty of where I'd sleep. I sat at a library desk, staring out the window. I couldn't focus on my laptop screen. Colleges demanded to know who I was. Who was I? I was hungry. I hadn't eaten since the day before, a protein bar after surgery. Who was I? I wanted to cry. I didn't know. My other big task was no easier. The letter of extenuating circumstances providing context for my life. But I had no context. I was still in the middle of it. When security came to shut down the library, I sent my drafts to Dr. Cat, hating myself for how bad they were, and drove around looking for a parking lot where I could sleep. I needed somewhere quiet enough no one would notice me, busy enough that no one would try anything. A tornado alert interrupted Top 40 on the radio. I shut off the dial. I drove through the lights of Dinkytown, the area around the University of Minnesota. It seemed filled with light and happy people. I imagined another version of my life, one where I had gone to college early. I could have had a little apartment by now, a job, Tears pinched out of the corners of my eyes. I had to get into a good school. If not, what was all the suffering for? Eventually, I pulled into a Rainbow Foods parking lot near the back under a floodlight. I put the silver sun deflector in the windshield for privacy, then climbed into the back seat. I stuck my Jansport under my head like a pillow and hugged my gray sweater. Curled up, I felt so dumb for leaving Courtney's house. I thought about her boyfriend sitting at the kitchen table, eyeing me and my pills. He seemed like bad news, but that was a feeling, not a fact. Following that feeling had led me here, scrunched up in the car. I shut my eyes and tried to sleep, to rest so that the next day I could be productive, but that just made the tears stream down. Why hadn't I planned ahead? I had left for the summer with such tenuous plans. Of course things fell apart. I had three weeks before school started. Too long to sleep in my car, not long enough to do everything I was supposed to get done. The wounds on my legs burned. I shut my eyes and imagined Charlotte, my friend from high school. The the upholstery of her car seat was her body, pressed against mine, holding me. I startled awake. A figure stood beside my window. Fear shot through me. I lay very still. Was it a cop telling me I'd broken a law, ready to take me to juvie? Worse, was it a man who wanted to hurt me? The shadow receded. I heard the trunk of a car opening, then an engine turning on, then the wheels on the pavement as it drove away. Tears pulled in my ears. I scratched at the tape on the edge of my bandages more vigorously, wishing I could claw into the sutures that hurt more than any cut had. Hyperventilating, I did something I hadn't done in a long time. I prayed. Dear Lord Jesus, finder of lost keys, grantor of fives on AP tests, I'm so lonely. My chest heaved with sobs. Save me. Make me believe. If I doubted... I was screwed. It was my responsibility, even then, to stay positive, convinced that the impossible would come to pass.
2: Thank you very much. I feel like that passage challenges in the way that we've been discussing the sort of tropes, usual tropes of homelessness in important ways. I mean, yeah, you're in your car, you're in a grocery store parking lot. That's what people expect. But you're also trying to write your college application essays and you just had surgery and you're attending this school, albeit on scholarship. And yet, these trappings of middle class achievement don't prevent you from ending up there in the Rainbow Foods parking lot. And I should say, you know, I've had students who have experienced housing insecurity, have lost a place to live, while they're in a in our creative writing program, or while they're here studying as undergraduates at UMKC. Um, and sometimes those extra responsibilities are what helps put you in that situation, right? Rather than what's like keeping you out of it. I wonder if you could talk about that a little bit.
1: I felt like my life back then was filled with damned if you do damned if you don't situations, you know, that night sleeping in my car, I felt really strongly that I wanted too much that I should have just made choices that would have resulted in me like having a place to sleep that night instead of ones that were focused on my like long term stability. And so I was dealing with questions like, should I have remained in foster care and not gone to boarding school? even though my foster parents didn't support me academically and had a problem with the fact that I was queer. I was thinking, should I have gotten a minimum wage job that summer during the financial crisis instead of doing the things that were gonna help me get a full ride to college? Um, You know, if I'd stayed at my friend's house with the boyfriend that creeped me out and something bad had happened, I knew I would have been blamed, but because I chose to leave, I felt responsible for that too.
2: Yeah, I think that's really interesting. And one of the, you know, it made me think about the way Americans think about homelessness, which is that there's a r- weird bifurcation. I'm going to try to express this. You can tell me if you think I'm wrong, Sugi. I wonder what you think about this. But Americans see a homeless person and they think, you should have done more to get out of that situation. It would be easy for you to get a job. You should do something, right? But then when they see someone who is trying to do something like what you're trying to do in this scene, right? Wow, why, why are they writing college essays? They should just go get a, you know, and like, that's a catch-22 like the minimum wage job that you would take is the thing that leads you into homelessness not that gets you out right it's actually trying to do something better that then people think well you shouldn't be trying to do that there's this it's a very weird way that americans think about people who are experiencing housing insecurity i think does that seem rational or fair as somebody who's like experienced the opinions or maybe even internalized the opinions of your regular american about this issue
1: i I think it's all related to the obsession with self-sufficiency okay. that we have in America, and with the the refusal to see just about anything as a larger systemic problem manifesting in one person's mm-hmm. life, and instead being like, you know, you like, even at sixteen, I had internalized it. I should have planned.
2: Yeah, one, that's right? what I'm talking I about. I feel have like had a that's a place the internalized stay. voice of the like, yeah. dickhead American thinking about this issue. <laughs>
0: Well, I mean, it's also interesting to think about, like, who is I don't know. When we talk about regular Americans, um, you know, you talk about this incredible sort of mobility roller coaster of being in a two-parent middle-class household and then being housing insecure. Um, the seeming incongruity, although how incongruous I don't really know. Like, it is, you know, I I spent a year as the as the Bennett Fellow, the writer in residence at Phillips Exeter Academy. There are all of these like elite schools all over the place, but um, I don't know that that means that the students who go there, um, some of whom are there on scholarship, certainly, or some of whom are experiencing changing changing circumstances during their time in their teenage years are that we can necessarily assume so much about folks. But I think, you know, Whitney, I agree with you about like this is all sort of tabbed to our like ludicrous notion of the American dream and meritocracy, which like is not we're not set up that way. It's like an entire like governance system of gaslighting. So um like I don't and I think like there's also something really interesting here. Like I mean I don't know if are you familiar with um, or Whitney? I wonder if you're familiar with these terms. Like, I, I'm thinking of Jim Shepard's. Um, I think it's him who who talks about acute action and chronic action. Like when when you build a scene, right? And and sort of the acute action is the tension within the scene, and the chronic action is kind of like the long narrative arc. And so if, if you're telling a story of like urgent urgency that is related to transience or kind of like basic human needs, like insecurity, like food insecurity or housing insecurity, the relationship between acute action and chronic action is different than it might be in another kind of narrative where like in another kind of narrative like acute action might even be building towards like long questions right they might be accumulating in a different way whereas in a narrative that is about um, housing insecurity those things seem like they might be in fundamental opposition those might be the, the questions that are that are presenting the protagonist of the story the narrator Um, whether it's in a memoir or fiction, and I'm asking this question from the perspective of someone who primarily writes fiction, right? Like that means that the acute action, like the urgent need is always presenting you with a choice that isn't actually serving like your longer term goal. And so if you haven't sized your ambition appropriately, like the system is going to come and smack you down. And so to portray that in narrative, which is like one of the great things that I think your book does, like that's, that was like one of the things that I felt like was, like, I felt like I was seeing that you were always having to choose between, like, long, good, the the American dream or whatever. And, and yeah, that question of where are you going to sleep?
1: Yeah. I think there's also this belief in America, which Whitney touched on, that once you get accepted into this elite institution, that that institution will save you. Or that it will make the things that happen before go away. And that is clearly not true and not true in my case or in other people's case.
2: Okay, we're going to take a short break here and we'll be right back. Well, one specific thing that I was thinking of in the book that relates to this chronic versus acute action thing was that you're trying to write these essays. You you get rejected for one and I can't remember this which of these things happens first, but at one point you're talking to your college counselor about this essay and the college counselor about your transcript, the college counselor looks back at all the different places that you've gone to school and says, I can't understand this. If I can't understand it, the college is going to understand it. You know, and, and, and so your whole past is traveling with you, right? That that you've been in all these different schools because you were moving around, because you had housing insecurity. Like all this stuff doesn't go away. You're trying to solve it here by writing this essay. And like this baggage is, is traveling with you and making that problem more acute, more difficult. I shouldn't use acute because we're using it a different way in this discussion. Is that is that what you're talking about, Sugi?
0: Yeah, I think a little bit. Okay.
2: I have a question about this, like, we all notice that one of the reasons we're doing this episode is because it's gotten, it seems like your, your story is not set during the pandemic, but it, this has happened, gotten worse during the pandemic. There are, at least I know anecdotally from looking at the streets of Kansas City, more homeless people here living. There are large encampments here that weren't there before. What are the things we can do to make this better? I mean, I only know about stopgap measures, you know, like the mayor in Kansas City, like put homeless people who are living outside of his offices downtown, you know, into hotels. But that's not a permanent solution, I don't think. I mean, are, what are what are some of your ideas for how to address this problem, the chronic nature of the problem, rather than acute solving of the problem, which would be putting people into a hotel?
1: There's a wonderful book called In the Midst of Plenty by Mary Beth Shin and Jill Kadori, which- Gives a really good overview of the research into who becomes homeless, why they become homeless, and what to do about it. And a ton of this research says for chronic, especially family homelessness, a lot of it just simply comes down to housing prices and how can we get housing to be more affordable. And not just for the people who are selected in like a lottery, but really for everyone. Um, and so, you know, the housing vouchers really seem to work just subsidizing housing for people Um, but there's bigger questions that every single person should be thinking about about what are the factors that are making our cities so unaffordable and how can they be changed. Um, Things like things like zoning, regulations that don't make sense anymore. Um, Because all of that you know it sometimes it makes my blood boil to hear my like rich progressive friends talk about like how you know this neighborhood has to stay beautiful it has to stay like sparsely populated and I'm like that is literally why people are on the street right now and I think that to ignore that is to live in a fantasy land
2: uh, okay it seems like one more thing on this Sugi is that Democrats suck on this issue like, normally they we're really like, are. okay, it's clear, you know, the Democrats are on the right side of this issue, of this issue. Say we're talking about abortion rights or whatever. But here, look at California. It's a totally democratically controlled state that has terrible housing prices and a tremendous homeless crisis right now. And Kansas City is a democratically run city and it has the same problems.
0: And I think, you know, looking around, you know, I live in Hennepin County where a lot of your story takes place. And, you know, I also have had encampments near my house. I've watched authorities, like, shut them down really brutally, um, with, like, a a real lack of compassion, like, not allowing people to hold on to their possessions. um, And, like, really what feels to me like watching them shut them down for no reason. Um, You know, there are states where they've made sleeping in a public space um, a crime. And I don't know, like, how that helps anyone. And so your point about public housing, I think, is um, around housing shortage is well taken. And there's so many varieties here. Like, I was sort of... um, studying up as I was trying to think about how I wanted to talk about or the questions that I wanted to ask about this issue and trying to like sort of parse the differences between like there's subsidized housing, there's public housing, right? There's foster care. Um, There's all of these different systems. And there is this sort of progressive interest in addressing public housing, which seems to have boomed during the 50s, 60s, and 70s, and and during sort of the 80s and 90s under Reagan, and then sort of um, especially in, in 1998 with with something called the Faircloth Amendment, has really declined. The Faircloth Amendment, for our listeners, and I should say that I'm Come on, do, the, do this, the info having, dump. I don't know what it is. Having just learned it. Having just learned okay. this. um <laughs> The Faircloth Amendment, and there was a soft repeal of this in Build Back Back Better. Um, The Faircloth Amendment is um, something that was put into effect in 1998 that caps how much public housing the federal government can build. And so it's like this artificial cap that really prevents us from addressing this problem. And there have been a bunch of progressive housing bills. So I was like also reading about this last night, I was like, Oh, there's a housing bill from AOC and one from Ilhan Omar and one from Ted Lieu. And they all have vaguely similar names and none of them seem like they're going anywhere. Um, and Congress is willfully oblique. So it's actually really hard to tell, but there was public housing stuff in build back better. And, um, you know, are, I don't even know what I want to call Joe Manchin, but like, you know, this is like, a, that ship's is at least for the moment, like it seems like it's sunk. And, you know, here again in Hennepin County, there was like this yard sign war between about, about zoning, about housing density. Like, can you build a fourplex? Or like, no, what about my historic home? And I'm like, you know, neighbors for more neighbors versus like, keep Minneapolis beautiful sort of signs. And, There seems to be like a real lack of understanding about how this would actually affect people's lives um, and improve like the quality of everyone's life. And so I don't know, sort of the last great public housing boom um, seems to have been like really kind of in the wake of the Great Depression, like sort of New Deal. And then um, and then when you look at the public housing, like I was looking this up with my um, partner last night, like all of the architecture of all of the buildings that are public housing in Minneapolis, they're all from the 70s.
2: When was the last time you even heard a Democratic candidate talk about public housing or make it an important, you know, plank? I don't. I don't remember anyone. I don't remember the Democratic Party talking about this at all. I mean, it
0: wasn't build back better. Um, okay,
2: that's true. Thanks, Joe Manchin. But like,
0: yes.
1: But I feel like everyone talks about affordable housing, then they wave their hands about what that actually yes. means, and it's like, oh, we'll have a hundred units or a thousand units or a hundred thousand units, but not like. How do we address this crisis that's affecting every single family?
0: The other thing that it seems Go like ahead. It, oh, it seems like it also um produces a little bit of turf wars because of the geographic distribution of homelessness really being variable, and it seems like it's been heavily a coastal problem, but now it's also kind of moving to different parts of the country, including the midwest and so like if you try to have an you know have funding for it then Um, Congress people seem like they're a little bit arguing over like, oh, well, your state's going to get stuff and mine's not, um, which doesn't help either. Um, and then of course, all of these sorts of loopholes or like subsidized housing. Say you, you know, you're a developer and you build a luxury building and you say X apartments are going to, um, subsidized housing. That also means that you're like sitting there kind of profiting, off of these, like, luxury apartments that most people can't afford, um, which seems to be working out really well for many developers in Minneapolis.
1: Yeah. And people forget that we live in a country where housing for rich people is subsidized by the mortgage interest tax deduction.
0: That's a super good point.
1: I mean, if you have a $750,000 mortgage and you're in the top tax bracket, that's like more than 20 K a year that the government is putting directly into your is hands, that, is, that is, still
2: true? Didn't yeah. Trump take that away? Oh, I have yeah. to talk to my tax person he, you know, about he this. He reduced
1: <laughs> it. He reduced it. He reduced okay. it, but not, but now the cap is like $750,000 either home or mortgage. I forget which, and you know, I recently became a homeowner and now I benefit from this and it's sickening that it's literally more money that I get from the federal government in the form of this credit than a whole family gets to live in a subsidized, like to live in an, apart- an entire apartment in many cases.
2: I wanted to bring up one last uh, f- fact that I thought would be helpful here that there's a, there was a study that came out in May of 2022 About how many foster kids go missing from the various foster systems of the various states? We'll link to this in our show notes. For Missouri, over a two and a half year period, it was 1,780 kids missing. You know, uh, over the course of that period, and and in other states, it's much, much higher. Texas and and California have astronomical numbers, right? So the 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 other issue that we're talking that you 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 dealt with, you were in the foster care system, is that it doesn't work very well. (laughs) Tremendous number of problems. How do do we make that better? So there's obviously a lot of
1: different issues with foster care, and a lot of people are working on kind of how do we avoid separating families in the first place. Um, But when children really can't live at home, I think the, the way that they are put into foster care can have a huge impact on their housing stability later on. So state and federal law, they both require that kids are placed with relatives whenever that's possible. But often these kinship searches, as they're called, never happen. And in some states, the rate of children living with relatives is 10%. And so when I went to foster care, I was sent to live with strangers. I had a brother who was 12 years older than me, and he had a wife and two kids, and they lived in a house just a few miles away from my mom. Um, but I, you know, I didn't go to live with him. I never questioned why I didn't. And then over a decade later, I learned that he had tried to take me in. And nobody had contacted him. You know, he had told my mom, like, I can, we can take her. But she ghosted him. And n- everybody knew that I had a brother, you know, who had a job, who was like an upstanding citizen. And nobody contacted him or any of the other family members. and. I think that that, that both makes a huge difference in the experience of being in foster care, but even after I left, you know, my foster parents, when I, they heard I was going to go to summer camp, they were like, okay, then somebody, we're going to put up your bed so that somebody else can move in. And I totally understand that. We did not have a connection besides the system, but family like often doesn't do that to other family members. And so I think during some of these periods where I was really struggling with housing instability, if I had had those family relationships, it would have been a lot easier for me to have a place to go and a place to stay.
0: So, I mean, I want to go back a little bit to something you were saying earlier about um grit and resilience. And there's a powerful moment when you realize that although you want your problems to disappear, it was shaping the narrative of your homelessness, maybe what gets you kind of the access to elite spaces and specifically elite education that you want. And you write, I'm quoting here, the last thing I wanted was for people to see me in this state to witness the lowest moments of my life, record them and trot them out later. The evidence that a shelter could provide might even make the difference between acceptance and rejection, a golden ticket out or more years struggling. The idea made me so upset that I trembled. And this sort of follows like one of the adults in your life suggesting essentially that you you collect a kind of evidence. And I wonder if you can talk a little bit more about um, acceptance, which is the title of your book, and, and your thoughts about how we understand narratives of grit and resilience and, and redemption. One
1: of the big through lines of acceptance is this search to get into an elite college and to get the stability and kind of normalcy that that would provide me. And so in the book, I write a lot about the pressure to conform to certain narratives. And when I was in high school applying to college, there was this huge burden of proof to prove like, were you actually homeless? Were you homeless in the right way? Were you in foster care? Did your parents actually have mental illnesses? And so I had to collect all of this documentation and present it as if it wasn't my life that was very upsetting to me. And it wasn't enough to just tell my story. I had to really sell it and it wasn't enough for me to have survived this stuff. I had to prove that I was made stronger for it and in short that I was extremely resilient. And so grit has just become this huge buzzword in recent years, probably more so since the pandemic. And it's touted as a panacea for everything from, like, lead poisoning to depression. And when I encounter this narrative, it, today, it feels like a final throwing up of hands. Like, we can't solve these social problems, so instead we're going to, like, put them onto individuals who can make the blast zone smaller by absorbing all of the impact of these tragedies. You know, and because I did make it out and... I got into Harvard and got a job at Google, there was this huge pressure on me to be an overcomer and prove that it's possible to just walk away from that all unscathed. And that wasn't true because I was affected and I was changed. And this belief that people, especially children can go through these injustices and then be completely fine really makes it harder to have social progress. Because it takes away any sense of consequences. Where the the narrative that I face and that I try to fight against in this book is that if you are just tough enough and you put your mind to it, that the things that have happened in your life will not continue
0: to haunt you. It's such a capitalist way to like for even like even suffering must be useful. It must be like a kind of currency that is getting paid to someone. Um, which is so maddening. Um, you mentioned earlier a book that you would recommend, and I'm curious to hear you talk a little bit more about um, other books you might recommend and, and what books you found helpful as you wrote.
1: So Invisible Child by Andrea Elliott, um, it, I recently read it and it's a wonderful book following nine years in the life of a girl whose family is chronically homeless. And so that takes place in the shelter system in New York and then the foster care system in New York. And I think that book is a really good resource for seeing how foster care intersects with class and race and addiction and poverty. And um, you really see a lot of the different programs through the lens of this one child and her family. Um, A book that really helped me when I was writing this was Random Family by Adrian Nicole LeBlanc. And this is just a classic of journalism um, that follows ten years in the life of an extended family during the war on drugs. And I think people don't often think about this as a book about homelessness or housing instability, but through this family you really see the chaos that not having enough stable housing really brings on them. And it also shows that you know, the people in this book are watching out for each other all the time, and a lot of people would suggest that that is the solution to like, lots of different social problems. But I think that Random Family really illuminates how that can kind of hold everybody down and in our current system make it really, really hard for anyone to escape poverty.
0: Was Adrienne Nicola Block your teacher?
1: She was not my teacher, but I applied for the MFA program at Hunter College, and I got when she was teaching there. And I got in, and I connected with her. And then I didn't go to the program, but she did read the book actually and give me notes. So I owe a lot of the really good points to her.
0: Um, I'm a huge fan of hers, and I did read that book actually in journalism school. And um, then when I spotted her name in your acknowledgments, I was like, was she at Harvard? Um, and, but yeah, that's very, that's very cool. Um, she she's an amazing writer and I just want to, yeah, that book is astonishing. Um, when I was thinking about this issue, I think. Um, More Harvard log rolling, of,
2: huh, Sugi? <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I are definitely the people who are going to hold off Harvard as an institution that solves everything. <laughs> I think, um, yeah, I mean, one of the reasons I was interested in your book is I think, you know, like, certainly um, some of the things that you're describing, like sort of the ways that, um, I don't know. We talk about like narratives of redemption or isolation or displacement. Like that narrative of redemption, like so much, so often there's some sort of elite institution at the end of it. You know, there's um, like homeless to Harvard came out before. Like there's almost like a like a minor industry around this, um, and that's that's no shade on that particular book, which I should I should say I haven't read. But there is like this desire for it to look so clean, um, and yeah, like I think that the books that have complicated the ways that I look at institutions are like, like random family are are among my favorites. Um, But yeah, in keeping with more um, institutions that Whitney and I have both attended, um, Marilyn Robinson's housekeeping is a book that I I think of as kind of like a book that maybe one of the first books that I read that kind of made me think about this in a certain way. And then also um, my friend Nami um, Moon wrote a really wonderful novel called miles from nowhere, which I like a lot.
2: Well, Um, speaking of books that we like a lot we like your book a lot and it's been a great conversation thank you so much for joining us Um, and congratulations on the book we want to encourage our listeners to pre-order acceptance or get to the bookstore in just a few days because the book is coming out on August 2nd
1: thank you so much for having me
2: that's it for the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast this podcast is produced by Ann Knigendorf our theme music is composed by Travis Workman you can subscribe to us by typing fiction-slash-non-slash-fiction into the search bar of your favorite podcast app. Please go give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts if you haven't done it yet. You can also listen, find previous episodes, and read excerpts from our interviews at the Literary Hub website, lithub.com, where the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast page is listed under the Lit Hub Radio tab. We'll also post that show page with links to the books we referenced this week on Facebook at FNF Pod on Twitter at FNF Talk on Instagram at fiction.non.fiction.podcast. You can find video of our interviews at our own Fiction Nonfiction Podcast YouTube channel and IGTV channel, and on our website at fnfpodcast.net, where our back episodes are grouped by topic areas. Happy reading!